This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value, that thing that makes your business go, um, and everything around that, and designing your company around value. Normally, we have somebody who's been in an existing business who's got like a great value practice or a great value focus, but today, I've got a friend, Jen Blowers, who has just gone on her own. She's starting out as a consultant. This is what, month one, week two, right? So this is, but she is going out, she's starting out gangbusters. I have seldom seen somebody just call a couple of network people and say, Jen, we have to talk. Hey, Jen, I've got some work for you. Jen, do this. Jen, call me. Um, Jen Blowers, welcome. Thank you, Mark. I'm so excited to be here. I'm honored. Thank you. Yep. So tell a little bit, you know, you, you are working at a pharmaceutical company. You've got your, you've got your MBA from Chicago. Great school. Um, you were working in for a pharma company for, with it, with a drug that really coincides with one of your passions. This was a drug that puts uh, a special formulation of a, of a simple anesthetic. Think of one of the cane drugs, right? Novocaine, bupivacaine. But normally those things last a couple hours, but they've got a, they had a formulation that would last for, for 72 so that after surgery, you could give a patient this drug and they would never need to be introduced to opioids. Yes. So Jen was, was at this company and is like super passionate about it. That's where I met her because my wife uh, practices and uses these kind of drugs in, in her practice. Um, so Jen, tell us a little bit about you know, what you did, what your, you know, and kind of your, your launch out into the world. Sure, sure. Thank you, Mark, for that wonderful introduction. I have some would call a slightly obsessive passion about avoiding or eliminating the use of opioids in the surgical setting. So I was thrilled to be a part of the launch of my previous company and uh, just having an opportunity to contribute back to the healthcare delivery systems that I served and the company that I served was just tremendous for me because I'll never touch a patient. I'm never going to heal a patient with something fabulous that I do in the OR or in some way, shape or form touch the patient. But if I can bring a value into the process, if I can help that service team 
perhaps make a different decision that improves the outcomes for that patient and, oh, by the way, keeps them from being exposed to a dangerous opioid, I feel awesome at the end of the day. My head hits the pillow and I feel great. So uh, that was the last company that I was an official employee of until I became an N of one and an N of Jen and an employee of myself. So <laughs> yep. that leads into being a consultant happened last month in March. And uh, you would say that I woke up one morning, clapped my hands and said, today I'm going to become a consultant and I'm going to save the world. I wish that were true. <laughs> if I think back to my journey to this point in my career and my life, there are a few moments along the way that really defined this path for me. And I would say one of them most recently was my father-in-law was ill for the last two years. And um, as you know, um, my in-laws live in England. So when my father-in-law was navigating the NHS and really struggling with that care path, I put my process hat on and I said, where are the opportunities for improvement? How can I help Ray get more efficient care for whatever is ailing him? How come we can't figure out what's going on? Why doesn't Dr. X talk to Dr. A? Why, why are there bottlenecks? So I had been talking about going out on my own and consulting for many, many years. And it was the life-changing moment when my, my dear 75-year-old father-in-law passed and we didn't have a diagnosis. And the doctors had their hands up in the air saying, we don't have a system of care where we could figure out what was wrong with Ray. All we knew is he was deteriorating. And so I decided, Mark, that life is too short and I've wanted to be a consultant for a long, long time. So here I am. Yep, I mean, you and I have talked about that dream uh, but either N of one or with a couple of colleagues that you really enjoy working with. And, and I've known about this dream. Uh, I also know that you, you have this real nose for value and understanding. And, you know, this, these drugs, these opioid sparing drugs, your, your company wasn't the first one in the market. Um, they happen to have arguably a better formulation that lasted a little bit longer, was proved to last a little longer and some other stuff. Um, but they could have gone to the market just selling to the people who had already been converted by this first company in the market or taking the slightly slower but much larger market of creating the market for themselves. Exactly. And, and it's so easy for pharma droids to just go where buyers already know how to buy your stuff. Yes, and that's why I'm out on my own, hopefully, knock on wood, able to help more companies than just one now that I'm an independent consultant. Because one of the things that I stumbled into after grad school was Lean Six Sigma. And I went into that training with my arms folded across my chest in the back of the training room saying, how is an aircraft engineer going to teach me about a patient service line and a throughput analysis when patients aren't widgets, they're not nuts and bolts. You can't get to zero defects with a patient. How in the heck am I going to learn anything from this training? And then I stumbled into lean, which in my opinion is a kinder, gentler version of Six Sigma, where you take 
a, a process workflow and you say, gosh, where are the areas of opportunity for improvement? Can we find two or three areas of opportunity for improvement, draw a circle around those, align the stakeholders, and start trying to fix it? You know, can we get an OR throughput to from 10 minutes to seven minutes? And what does that mean? How does that affect the patient, the staff, the products being used? So gosh, I would say about aging myself, about 16 years ago, I stumbled into that world and the rest is history. I took that lens yeah. and used it everything I've done. And companies have an opportunity to take that that lens and look at their opportunity to engage the market beyond what you just articulated, the pharma droids. Let's look at value. Let's look at your hospitals and physicians and staff that are looking for opportunities for improvement. And how do we align with what the company's looking to do? Yeah. And the, they're all looking to serve. Yeah. I, you know, I, you know, I've, I had my passing familiarity with Six Sigma and Lean and process improvement, and I enjoy all that stuff. Um, I love focusing on and and getting a holistic picture of a business and saying which of all the opportunities for improvement and launching a Lean project, where is the constraint? Which is the one that's actually going to move the total company forward rather than move that team forward, but keep the company about where it is. Because, you know, if, if you're not fixing something that is constraining the company's growth, you might be, the best case is you're going to lower a little bit of cost, but you're not going to really launch that company onto a new level. And yeah. so you've got both of those. You've got that sense for where's this going to do the most good. And rather than the mindless application of lean into wherever uh, you've got that insight to be able to say, here's where your business is truly constrained. This is the bottleneck in your entire business. Yes. Uh, so let's, let's, let's figure out how that, this works and pull out bottlenecks there. Exactly, exactly. And it's all about the process. It's not the people. Years and years ago, I would say, gosh, this is going back probably 10 plus years in my career. I was fortunate enough to be a consultant on behalf of a pharmaceutical company where my team and I were staffed to different hospitals where we would go in and do the Lean Six Sigma project work to help those hospitals improve whatever workflow they were working on. So a lot of the work was around VTE prophylaxis, inpatient glycemic control, and I'll never forget one of my project teams, this is out in California, when a pharmacist that was on our multidisciplinary team was a little unnerved that someone from a pharmaceutical company was in their department working on a lean project. She didn't really warm up to me being there, even though her boss wanted me to be there. Fast forward a few months, we were kicking off an HCAPS project, which was around the reporting of how well the staff treats their patients on a variety of metrics. And this lady out of the blue says to one of the teammates, it's not the people, it's not a people problem. We have a process problem. And I folded my book, grabbed my computer, and the gentleman that ran the project said, Jen, where are you going? I said, my job here is done. 
she get to it? It's not the people. It's the process that needs fixing. <laughs> he said, but you can't leave. I said, no, no, no. I'm just trying to prove a point that, you know, we're, we're teaching, we're seeing a project, we're doing a project. And then that person runs off and takes it to their service line. So it's that yep. cascade of continuous improvement that I'm just obsessed with. All right. So here's, here's my, um, I, I love processes. But, and processes make doing something over and over more repeatable and more consistent. All for that. But every, what do you think about this? This is another thing about processes. Every process that makes you good at doing something as an organization makes you bad at doing everything else. There's a knockoff. Right? It makes you bad at changing the process. It makes you bad at seeing when the process doesn't fit because your people want to throw every border every marginal case through the process because this is our process even though it doesn't fit this particular case very well we're going to keep barfing the you know the barfing people through the pro the process come hell or high water right tell tell me what you do you know tell me your thoughts about that and how you help people recognize that their responsibility is questioning the process from time to time it's all about empowerment in my mind i i have found when I first got started in this work years and years ago, I found that it was typically senior leadership within a particular healthcare entity, whether that be a hospital, a medical group, a health plan. It typically was the very senior leaders that are aligning their strategic objectives saying, we need to reduce length of stay, go figure it out. You know, And they'll be sitting there with that lofty goal of, oh my gosh, I've been told I need to reduce my length of stay. I don't know how to do that. And where I would come into the, the project would say, well, let's go take a field trip because I guarantee you, your folks that are in your units, the people that are touching that process, the end users every day, they've got some great ideas. And so medicine from where I've sat on the supply chain side is very hierarchical. You've got the CEO that says, we're going to do this. You've got a vice president that finds someone that's going to take the project and run with it. And then you've got this kind of push down of, well, who's going to do the actual work? So when these end users who have their job to be the nurse or have their job to be the tech or have their job to be the surgeon, they get told they're going to do this project. Well, they, it needs to be a two-way street. You've got to empower those folks to be able to appropriately say, I don't agree with you, Mr. or Mrs. Vice President of Awesomeness. I have an idea over here. Whether that's a sticky note that they're able to put up on a Kaizen board so they can anonymously bring their idea forward, or whether that's a meeting where you have all the stakeholders at the table saying there are no bad ideas in this room. There are, There is no punitive action if you want to bring something forward because remember, we're anchoring in the process. We're not it's, anchoring in the individual. It's the genius of the group. Um, yes. Right? Yes. Um, I, I went through this tirade and I still believe it. I'm just not, it's not the first thing out of my mouth right this week. In <laughs> that is, Companies need to be designed from the customer out, right? We went, you, I don't know if you went to the business school, right? In the same era I did, but the idea was that executives were responsible for 
seeing what's happening in the world and, and for sensing everything and for being the all-knowing, uh, all-visionary. And they were the ones to find what the change was and they were the ones to design the change and they were the ones to roll the change out to the group and everybody was um, the drone who was going to implement this grand plan. And I, I, you know, my first big boy job was a company that didn't have, they, they, can, they don't have managers. There is not a single manager, supervisor, vice, anything. Wow. Um, you, there's leaders. And they, the founder of the company said, look behind you. If there's people following you, you're a leader. And if there's not, you're not. And so the natural leaders would, and so these, it was self-guiding teams and the teams would get bigger and bigger. And in that company, everybody, the leaders, the leaders that led the best teams were the ones that just organically engaged all that natural problem solving, right? I, uh, the patent that I had, that I got at that company, uh, I had in combination with the manufacturing technician. I had half wow. the idea, he had the other one. And this was the guy who ran an extruder, right? <laughs> and, and, but he said, well, what if we, you know, do this? And so uh, I, I very quickly, in my, my first big boy job, I got that shaken out of me pretty hard. But yeah. there's a lot of people who don't. They don't. And, and, you know, I think there's a level of comfort in, the way it's always been done, so to speak. We've done it this way. We did it in the 80s. It worked in the 90s. And I don't know if it's the, the pandemic that perhaps has brought this into healthcare delivery. I sense now that folks that were perhaps a little change averse or risk averse and, and maybe not necessarily ready to take the leap, myself included, you and I have been talking about me going out on my own for years now. You know, folks that were a little perhaps leery of entertaining that change, they're now at least willing to listen. Yep. Perhaps they might not be ready to jump on the bandwagon, but at least they're open to the conversation. As I think about the wonderful companies I've worked for, the wonderful teams I've been a part of, and all the wonderful experiences I've been able to have, I think... All those folks wanted to do right by their product, do right by their patients that they serve, and do right by their employees. And now we're in a place where the, the way that pharmaceutical companies and supply chain companies come to market, it has to change, Mark. It, it really does. We have to move from transactional to transformational ways of coming to market because if we don't, as an industry, we're going to be kept on the periphery. And that's not what these companies want. They yeah. want to be part of you raise You raise so many things, right? Um, first thing is the way things have always done, which kind of we build this inertia around stable processes. And you know me, I've, I'm working on this mediocrity thing. And mediocrity isn't poor performance, it's good enough performance. And the way things always have, we've always done things is good enough. Nobody questions you. Nobody accuses you of being bad if you're following its best practices. How could it possibly be bad, right? Um, the, the joke I had, right? Your job description all describes your minimum performance. Well, 
If it wasn't good enough, they wouldn't have called it the minimum, would they? <laughs> right? So, but, and, and, and so much of that is what you graded on when, like, it just, I could see it just tearing you up inside when you were having to, to conform to that kind of stuff. So it's great watching you spread your wings and get out. But what the great thing is now you're free to just be a consultant and not say, I mean, there's two kinds of consultants. One that tells the customer what they already know. But the other one is what they already know, but they need, they need to hear anyway, right? You have the hard conversations with them. And right, you're, you're, the, you're the one, you're the kind of consultant that has those hard conversations in the nicest possible way and in a way that I couldn't. Um, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but um, I'm so excited. So tell me about, you don't have to tell me clients and I don't know if you can disclose what you're doing, but what kinds of stuff are you doing? You were working on, um, for people who aren't familiar with healthcare, you were calling it patient access. So, um, and so you're, you're really excited about that area. So describe that and now, because that's your specialty and that's what people in the industry know you about. So tell us a little bit about what patient access is and then kind of where you're trying to go and what your, you know, what your people, what your superpower is. Why are people hiring Jen Blowers? Oh, my superpower. I, I, I might have to steal yours, Mark, with clarity. <laughs> if, if that's possible. Well, but it's clarity on something different, right? <laughs> So the patient access piece, it really falls under the umbrella of market access. So suppliers that come to market with new and or existing products tend to have a market access team that is responsible for breaking down the barriers for the individual folks that are in the field to bring their product to the right clinician to hopefully make a decision to buy that product. So where my expertise lies is in market access products. So I work with group purchasing organizations. I work with large integrated delivery networks, health systems on both the acute care and the non-acute care side to, I would argue, remove barriers to entry for both of these parties, the buyer, which is the hospital and or healthcare provider, and the seller, which is the pharmaceutical company, supply chain biotech vendor. Can I can I characterize it as helping the hospitals, helping the buying groups figure out when and how they w need to change? You're doing this, you're doing this operation this way and have been forever. Here's a new yeah. drug or here's a right. new device or here's a new way of doing this. Yeah. So now you you can't just plug this new thing into your old existing paradigms and just ask for the same thing at a lower price. You've got to figure out who's going to help you decide if it's good, who's going to help you decide if it saves costs, what costs, yeah. where, to who. And so yeah. you're, you're helping people do a business analysis of is this change of this new product or service, is it worth, is it, is it worth the hassle of the change? Exactly. And in my line of work, it's typically referred to as the value analysis, yeah. right? It's business analysis, but it's also that value equation in healthcare, which I'm so passionate about. Value equals quality divided by cost. And we're all charging towards better outcomes. The right patient at the right time with the right product. 
Yeah. And, and I'm coming to it from a perspective of a product is an intervention in that change. So a traditional quality improvement project in a hospital is a change in process. We're going to change this protocol to read this way instead of the way it always read. Well, the products and services that these companies are selling, they're an intervention. That's a change effort. And especially right now, it, on the heels of a pandemic, people are, are tired. The folks inside these, these hospitals and medical groups, they're exhausted. And having to take on another change effort at this point to take product X and change it out with product Y, that value analysis better darn line up with where they're going to get an ROI or they're not going to take the meeting. Yeah. Just. Yeah. So if you're in another industry and you just heard that description of what market access is, to you, you're saying, well, that's just sales, right? right. But in healthcare, sales is done by these, especially in pharma, it's done by these people who call on doctors and sit in waiting rooms and, and um, look pretty and talk nice and try to get the doctor to prescribe, right? They, they, they read the label off to the doctor they, they have a very narrow scope of what they are allowed to do because it's a regulated, highly regulated drug. And so we jokingly call them pharma droids because it's not sales. You can't change anybody. I mean, it's almost impossible to change somebody's mind in that role because your job is to make 60 phone calls or you know so many phone calls. So they've actually taken what's sales in other industries and broken it up into that, whatever that is, pharma droiding, and then your part, which is actually the professional change management, which involves people like you who have business and process expertise. Then there's medical and scientific folks who can talk the science and stuff. So that's the fun part of the business to me. Yes, it, it, it's super fun. And those are the projects that I have initiated right as I started. So a month ago when I made this leap into um, you know being an independent consultant, I, call, I started calling my, my shortlist. Everyone's got their shortlist, right, of folks they've worked for, worked with. And as soon as I started having these phone calls, I was hearing things like, you're so brave. I'm so excited for you. One of my colleagues called it a magical time. And I thought, magical? I hadn't even thought of that word. And another um, friend of mine that's VP of a company that I used to work for a few companies back, he said to me, you can help so many more companies now that you're out on your own. And, and that's really what gets me out of bed in the morning, is, is helping these companies move from that traditional, transactional, Here's your representative, here's your message, here's your sales cycle, here's your activity support. Move that company into where the customers are right now. And I'm, I can tell you from the last 15 years of being in this space, every single client that I spoke to in a market access role would say, bring me a solution. I get you've got a great product. Yes, I know you've done a lot of research. Your medical team is outstanding. Your reps are great. What else are you giving me besides this product? Can you come in and help me fix my workflow? Can right. you come in and help me with a solution? You've, and, and you've, you've got to come with the change management plan. Yes. You've, you, 
And if you don't have the change management plan, all you've got is all you've got is a price list that I don't want, right? Yeah. Right. Right. And and there's some research that the purchasing agent won't understand anyway. Exactly. Or the admit the and the administrator. Nobody. So you've got you've got to orchestrate a group change initiative. Uh, you've got to be a, a change agent and a change. You're you're a professional unpaid change manager. That's pretty much what is necessary. And what I really enjoy about this work that I think is so exciting is it's always been a passion of mine to bring the supplier to the table. We've seen really innovative models, uh, particularly in California, where they're, they're heavily capitated. They're bearing upside and downside risk. So we've seen unlikely bedfellows come together to collaborate and do the value equation. Value equals quality divided by cost. You've seen a health plan come together with a hospital and a medical group. These are three entities that typically did contract battling, you know, network management battling. And they'll come to the table around a book of business or and or around a membership community and say, how can we do better for our physicians how can we do better for our patients and they'll work on this together and they'll roll up their sleeves and they'll sign contracts and they'll work on this together and they keep the supplier out of the room they keep the products out of the room and i have been for the last decade passionate about the supplier should come to the table you have an existing agreement with the supplier what else can they do for you keep yeah Keeping the, keeping the supplier out of the room works as long as you perfectly understand everything the supplier's product does, can do, should do, might possibly do, and will be improved to do in the future. If you don't, under, if you don't understand all those things, you are, you're flying blind. You are. And, that's, and they, they look at it as, you know, purchasing Band-Aids should be parked outside of the doors, purchasing pharmaceuticals should be parked outside of the doors, I would argue they need to be at the table when and where appropriate because they've got skin in the game for their intervention. In other industries, I have noticed that purchasing, especially the higher up you go in the purchasing, to the, like the VP, the senior purchasing and uh, procurement folks, they charter everybody below them to buy based on total value. Not even total cost of ownership, total cost of ownership plus all those other things that are hard to measure but are real, right? So they are chartered to buy on value, but the lower you go, the less able to judge or to comprehend or to understand what value is. And so at that point, at some point when their ability to understand value goes out the window, then they assume that the value is, you know, that any incremental value is zero. And so it's just, I'm going to buy on price. So it's not that they buy on price because they think they buy on prices. They buy on price because they don't know what else to do. And so we need to get purchasing organizations that business acumen so they understand their own company and, and can begin those conversations and so those people become more attuned now you're go- you're going to do stuff on the upper right hand corner of the Kralik matrix first if you know what that is 
right? Right. It's it's how how uh, critical is this product to my organization, and how ma- how many vendors are there, and how expensive is it? And so if it's a high dollar cost item, and you're the only one, I'm going to be you know I go there first f- to partner. Um, and if it's just like everybody else, and it's cheap, um, I'll probably go to those folks last. So you have to kind of understand where you are on that matrix and in that spectrum. But um, you had a company that assumed that it was on that, that the that they wanted to go to the only the customers that already understood. Right. So they wouldn't have to do that education, wouldn't have to do that change management, because that's a lot of brain damage. It's a lot of work, and then the runway gets long. Yeah. Don't change fast in healthcare. I I mean, I. (laughs) you talk to anybody, it takes so long to evolve change, and part of that is because of the nature of the work. You're treating patients. You don't mess around with that. I mean, there are particularly strict clinical rigorous pathways that <laughs> products and services have to go through to get FDA. Yeah, t- totally get it. Um, yeah. For this this ass stuff that, that Tonya was working with, for a while, the, the, the science was really well established, but every doctor that you'd show the science, they'd say, nah, my patients are more sick than those in your study. My patients are less sick than yours. My patients are heavier than yours. My patients are lighter than yours. My patients have too many other comorbidities. My so my patients are different than the ones in the study, and so nah, I, I'm not going to buy your science. And so now there's been enough so that that's not it. It's not they can't say that anymore. My patients are different than all your science. Now they're saying it's too hard. It is hard. And it so. The, you know, the first, your pa- my patients are different was just an excuse. And you, right. you take that excuse and then it's something else. Then it's, We're exhausted no, no. from COVID. We're, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it, it, you just nailed another body of work that I started in my new life. So anything related to enhanced recovery after surgery, that's another project scope that I'm taking on right now. In fact, I'm wearing one of my enhanced recovery after surgery t-shirts in honor of our chat today. So when you think about that work, you know, one of the things that I found in my, my experience is that if those folks are saying, gosh, it's just too hard, perhaps there's someone else within that workflow to take on the quote-unquote hard because it doesn't have to be hard work to change and you can look at change processes my gosh maybe we picked a new service to do our landscaping well that's change you've got a different person billing you you've got a different schedule in the week it's the same change effort if you're moving from one protocol for enhanced recovery to another so sometimes with those folks that are outliers sitting there saying it's too hard. It's just about aligning and being real for them so they understand, well, gosh, I did this project when I did antimicrobial stewardship years ago. Yeah. For enhanced recovery. Yeah, you know, when you hear it's too hard, you have to not knee-jerk to accept that. Maybe it's too hard for you. Maybe it's too threatening for you. Maybe it's too risky for you. Maybe you just don't understand. So it's too hard 
is what came out of your mouth, but now you have to figure out why they decide, you know, what they're really feeling. And right. so you're right. Sometimes you go to one of their colleagues to help talk them off the cliff because yeah. as an outsider, maybe you're not able to do that. But sometimes maybe you get have enough um, credibility with them and with your great bedside manner, you just slow them down and ask, why is it so hard? What? Tell me what's going on. It goes back to the five whys, you know, peeling back that onion. What's really going on for you? Maybe there's something personal that no one knows about, or maybe there's something professionally that's keeping that individual from embracing a change effort that will lead to a better outcome for their patient. And if they're, in my mind, if they're willing and ready and capable, that's the holy grail. Yeah. If they're willing, but maybe not capable, there might be some fear there. Perhaps that's a teachable moment. You know, there could be a lot of different factors going on. If they're not willing and the heels are dug in, perhaps it's time to have a chat about a, an amicable breakup and we part our ways. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. I was just going to go to, you know, all of this assumes that when you've actually gotten through that and you've, you've scoped out the change management program and then you've done the analysis and it's worthwhile, right? The, the, view, the view is worth the climb. If the view is not worth the climb, both parties have to say, yeah, you're, you're right. You, you may not have to change. And I think there's an ethical sales, there's, ex ethical, there's an, a series of ethics that goes to, I'm not going to do this because it's good for me. And if it's not good for you, I will walk away. And uh, you've built that reputation over and over, which is probably why you're getting so many calls. Oh, thank you. Yes, I, I, I mean, I, I sure as heck hope so because I'm having a lot of fun and I'm working harder than I've ever worked probably in my career and, and, and feeling more fulfilled because I'm able to help a variety of companies. I'm able to help a variety of entities. And um, while I'm trying to figure out things like, you know, how to run your own business, the fun part for me is doing the work and supporting. These are folks that were my friends and colleagues for many, many years. So it's kind of like getting the band back together, Mark. You know? Yeah. Yep. Well, so how do people get a hold of you, Jen? Well, I uh, my logo is in, um, it's almost done. We had a, a very interesting typo. So we're back to the drawing board on my, on my <laughs> logo, but... My new company is called DJB Healthcare Consulting, and uh, the initials stand for my biggest fan and supporter. My husband's name is Duncan, as you know, you're friends with Duncan. So DJB Healthcare Consulting. So I can be reached by my cell phone, text, email. So my cell phone is 312-342-4629. And then my email right now is just my first dot last name. So Jennifer dot flowers which is flowers with a b as in boy instead of an f at gmail.com until i get that domain thing figured out that you helped me do okay my list <laughs> cool well jen thanks a lot for joining us and thanks everybody for listening in on this episode of the value clarity podcast where we remind you that value only works when the other person realizes it which means Sales, marketing, market access, it's a lot more like brain surgery than you might have thought. Thanks and have a high value day. These pots in a week. Maybe this current supplier screwed things up, put them up a creek. And I don't know why he wants 4,000.
of our gold-plated thingamabobs with the custom unobtainium mojo option. What do you mean? The custom unobtainium mojo option cost us more than 20 bucks by itself. Are you sure he knows that? Then why'd he tell me 20 bucks? Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.